Ephesians 1, 7 through 14, and you guys can open up to it um, in those in the Pew Bibles. Um, if you have those, Ephesians 1, 7 through 14, I'll give you a quick second. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you. If this is your first time, we're really, really glad you're here. We'd love to connect with you. And one of the ways we encourage you to do that is to fill out a connect card that's at the table after the service. We'd love to follow up with you, get you connected into one of our community groups and the life of the church. For those that are watching from home, I know we've got some people that are still at home during COVID, uh, and so we're really glad that you are with us, uh, though not in uh, the flesh. Uh, now, back in the 70s, there was a little book, actually, it was just a little booklet that was published by a tennis coach, uh, unknown tennis coach, but he published this little booklet of his ideas about tennis, and it's called The Inner Game. And the inner game, he said, was the, the, the game that happens in the mind of the tennis player as he's playing tennis. And so there's an outer game to tennis. I'm not a tennis player. But the outer game of tennis is serving and, and returning and being in the right place uh, on the court. But he said the outer game is not as important as the inner game, especially as you move up in the ranks. He said what holds people back as tennis players from being great at tennis is the inner game. They get too distracted, get too frustrated, get discouraged during the match, and they don't have the, the, the mental, uh, the resources of the mind to continue getting better. And so it's the inner game he suggested that mattered the most. And this little booklet like sold over a million copies, and it became the, the whole foundation of sports psychology. It didn't even exist until this little booklet. But in the same way, in Christianity, there's both an outer game and an inner game. The outer game is probably what we're most used to in the church. It's, it's doing all the Christian activities. It's reading your Bible. It's praying a little bit. It's going to church and, and serving and tithing and all of those important things. But Christianity is also an inner game. There's an inner life in Christ that we have, having been adopted by God the Father and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that prayer is not just something that we do, but it's a sweet fellowship with the Father. We don't just serve one another because we have to, but we, we are present to one another in love and we represent Christ to one another by our service. And we don't just give, but we express generosity back to the Father. And so it's the inner life that, that drives the outward life. And what Jesus taught and what the New Testament consistently teaches is that our, our inner and our outward lives need to be seamlessly connected. The inner drives the outward, but there should be no distinguishment between the inner and the outer. 
between the heart and the mind and the body, between the personal and the relational, the individual and the church, between grace and between the kingdom of God. A seamless connection is what we're after. And that's what Ephesians, the book that we started studying last week, helps us to do. In the first half of the book, it's all about our inner life in Christ, which has been accomplished through the will of God to save us. In the second half of the book, it describes the outward life, our relationships, our our posture towards the world, but it's our inner life that drives our outer life. What we're looking at today is, is three things that show us what happens in our hearts through God's power that then transforms us from the inside and and sends us out into the world. There's three things we're going to look at today. The gospel of redemption, the the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then the response of the church. So the gospel, the spirit, and then the church. Let me start with verse 7. This is the gospel of redemption. In him, in in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ." Now, Paul is is telling us again that this is the gospel. This is the core message of Christianity, that life with God is available to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it comes totally by grace. That's the gospel. That's the core message of Christianity. And the element of the gospel that Paul is identifying here is what we call redemption. He says, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, and that phrase is the key to the whole paragraph. The word redemption literally means liberated from slavery. What Paul is pointing us to is he's pointing us back to the Old Testament, to Exodus. If you know the story, Israel was in Egypt, and they were in slavery. They were under heavy oppression. Egypt was, was a brutal slave master. And so God raised up Moses, sent him to Pharaoh, you know, let my people go. And Pharaoh resisted. So God sent 10 plagues. And the 10th plague was the death of every firstborn son in the entire nation. Now Israel could be spared from this plague themselves if they would do one thing, take the firstborn lamb, a pure spotless lamb, sacrifice it and put its blood on their doorposts. And so that night as the angel of the Lord came through Egypt, the firstborn from every family was struck down except those who had put the blood sacrifice on their doorframe. And where that blood was, the angel of the Lord passed over those houses. And that's why we celebrate uh, the festival of Passover as Christians. Now, a few days later, Pharaoh, you know, changes his mind, chases them in the wilderness, and God provides by leading them miraculously through the Red Sea. And so Paul is drawing this connection that our salvation is essentially the same as that. We've been liberated from slavery, from oppression, not to a human ruler, but from sin. We've been liberated from sin. Sin has been our master from the moment that we are born into this world. We are under its power. We are under its evil oppression. But you have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. 
through the death of the firstborn son, pure, blameless, innocent in his death, his blood has caused the curse of sin to pass over you. That's what Paul is saying. You've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now, redemption, biblically, it's not just freedom from, but it's freedom to. We're not just freed from slavery, but we're freed to something new. And that's where Paul goes in verse 11. He says, In him you are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Once again, what what Paul is highlighting is what we are saved to, which is our union with Christ, our, our oneness with Christ. We are connected vitally to Jesus. We are one with him. That's what we talked about last week, union with Christ, the the core doctrine of Ephesians. And if you say, well, we've already covered that, so we don't need to go back there. You know, Ephesians, if we're not comfortable with repetition, Ephesians is going to be really hard. The phrase in Christ comes up more times than I think we can even count in this book. Paul comes back to our standing in Christ over and over and over. There's a counselor and writer named Elise Fitzpatrick. She's written this in her her great book, Found in Him. She says, Our union with Christ may be summed up with these words. Because the Father has immeasurable love for the Son, He has immeasurable love for us. He has immeasurable love for us because we are in the Son, part of Him, one with Him, married to Him, part of the family. God looks at us as though we always were. When the Father looks at us, he doesn't scratch his head and wonder, how did they get in here? No, he says, this is my beloved daughter, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. She continues, if you've ever doubted God's love for you, it's because you aren't thinking about his love for his own son. Does his love for the son ever change? No, of course not. Our one withness in him is eternal and unbreakable. Our union with him is his holy vow that he will be one with us forever. Cease loving you. God can no more do that than he can cease loving his own son. You are loved. You are not alone or lost. You've been found in him. I love that quote. It's a little bit long, but it's so powerful to remind us that we are loved in Christ, and so God's love for us is the same as his love for his own son. Now, that means two things at the same time. The first is that we are not saved by anything that we've done or because we are lovely in ourselves. If we are saved entirely in union to Christ, that means that we're not saved because we presented ourselves a certain way, not because we are lovely in ourselves, that we're you know, clever and creative and compassionate. No, Ephesians says you were dead in your sins. Your your performance, your self-centeredness, it only led to your own death. And the only reason that God has saved you is not because you managed to pull it together, not because you were a little bit better than other people, but because he chose to save you, and that's it. And so union with Christ should, should humble us. And yet at the same time, the second thing is equally true. You are completely and dearly loved. 
You are completely and dearly loved as if you had never once sinned. And so God doesn't just forgive like we forgive. You know, I don't know about you, but if I, I, I tend to be okay at forgiving somebody if, I, you know, if they've wronged me or mistreated me, but if they do the same thing a second time, do you ever feel that it just gets a little bit harder? If it happens like four or five or six times, you know, you're like, can I really just continue to forgive and forgive and forgive? And of course, at a certain point, there's wisdom and all that, but God is not like that. His forgiveness doesn't, doesn't wane. It doesn't get, get, you know, lighter as it goes. And so we have to make sure that we don't sin too much, although we shouldn't want to. No, his forgiveness is as strong every single time. And when he looks at us, it's as if we have never seen, sinned because we are one with Christ, fully redeemed. The late missionary Jack Miller, I've been reading his biography, so I'll probably quote him for like the next six weeks until I read a new biography. He says this, we are more sinful than we dare admit, and in Christ we are more loved than we ever dare imagine. Both things are simultaneously true, that we are more sinful than we would dare admit, but we are also more loved than we could ever possibly imagine. And that's the gospel that God offers you this eternal life, not because you've earned it in any way, but that because he has given it to you. He has set you free from slavery to sin. Now, if you're saying, well, well, how do I know? I, I, I don't feel like that. How do I know if I'm fully accepted that I'm one with Christ? If only God could like give me a sign or, or a seal or a deposit guaranteeing my inheritance until the future of the church. Well, that's where we go in verse 13. This is the second thing, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is is the seal and the guarantee and the deposit of our faith. Now on Friday, I, I read through the book of Ephesians again. It's not that long. It maybe takes 20 minutes. And I went through and I made note of every direct reference to the Holy Spirit. And I counted 14 direct references to the Holy Spirit. And I thought it'd be helpful if we understand here in in the very front end, the introduction to the sermon, what Paul means when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so I put the the 14 references into four categories. So if you're like, oh, we're going to do all 14. Yes, we're going to do all 14. But I've got them in four categories to help you. This is what Paul describes when he talks about the Holy Spirit. The first thing that's true is that the Holy Spirit is a seal and a guarantee. Chapter 113, we just read it. You are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. 114, the promised Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Chapter 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We are, we are sealed. We are, you know, signed and sealed. We are in the family of God. The very personal power of God, the Spirit of God himself, seals us so that we can never be lost. 
And even more, the Spirit of God is a, is a deposit for all that we will experience in the life to come. So you can imagine the Holy Spirit almost like an appetizer, like a little taste of all of the presence of God that we will have for all eternity. We have the Spirit now, and it's only a deposit, a seal, and a guarantee. Now, the second thing is that the Holy Spirit reveals God to us. In 117, Paul prays, may God give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. 3.5, this gospel has been revealed by the spirit to God's holy prophets and apostles. 6.17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so quite simply, the spirit enables us to know God to know him and and understand him and, and to relate to him as he truly is, to apply the scriptures to our life and to fight off temptation and sin and the enemy. The third thing, the Holy Spirit brings unity to the church. In 2.18, it says, through Jesus, we both, and it's referring to Jews and Gentiles, outsiders and insiders, we have access to the Father by one spirit. In 2.22, it says, In Christ you are being built together to become a dwelling or a temple in which God lives by his Spirit. 4.3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then 4.4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope. The role of the Holy Spirit is to create unity between God's children. It's to bring people together. He's the ultimate peacemaker, the ultimate reconciler, the ultimate healer. Where there was once many different ethnicities, there's now one new mankind. Where there was once division and dissension, there's now a peaceful unity. The Spirit's role is to bring the unity, and our role is to keep the unity. You get that? We don't even need to create unity among us. The Holy Spirit does that. It's our job to keep the unity of the Spirit. And so here's the fourth thing. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live like Christ. 316, may God strengthen you with his power through his Spirit in your inner being. 518, do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 519, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And then 618, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And so the Holy Spirit of God fills our hearts so that we might become more like Christ himself in ever-increasing measure. And when Paul calls us later in the book to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's writing to people who have already been filled with the Spirit, And yet he's encouraging them to cultivate that feeling, to to seek an increased manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life. He says we can grieve or diminish or minimize the role of the Spirit in our own lives, but instead seek to be filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit. All right, so we did all 14. We made it through. And if you get a little nervous when a, when a pastor says be filled you know, with a fullness of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, here's what I want you to see from these, these verses. When Paul describes being filled with the Holy Spirit, the two main things that he's pointing us to are prayer and worship. 
And this is consistent with the whole of the New Testament, that prayer and worship is the primary outpouring of being filled with the Spirit. Now, there's more to it than that, of course, keeping the unity of the Spirit, receiving gifts from the Spirit, but primarily our role, our participation in the Spirit and our response to the gospel, it begins with worship and prayer. And so now we're getting into the third thing, that's the response of the church. And so if the Spirit's role, sort of in in summary, is is sealing our redemption, revealing God, promoting unity, empowering us in Christlikeness, our first response is prayer and worship. Prayer in the Spirit, as Paul describes it, is a deep heart cry for God's presence, for God's kingdom to come on, on earth as it is in heaven. Seeking his face, seeking other people to come alongside you in prayer in the Spirit. And then worship in the Spirit is a deep heart cry of praising God for his glory, for his goodness, for his grace in us, not just me, but all of us. And I love how Paul, especially in Ephesians, as well as his other books, describes worship and prayer always in plural. Did you notice that? He's always writing to a people, not just a person, not just to an individual, but to a church family, to people together. To to worship and to pray is not an individual solitary pursuit, but it's done in community, in the church. We teach in our membership class that one of our theological distinctives, one of the things that sort of makes up who we are and what we believe is that we want to hold both the Word and the Spirit together. Now, often there are Word churches and there are Spirit churches. And Word churches tend to do a lot of expository preaching, tend to do you know counseling really well from the Scriptures. Worship tends to be really rich theological hymns. And to that we say, yes and amen, that's us. And then there are our Spirit churches which tend to prioritize prayer and worship. They're more expressive in their singing. They tend to be strong in unity, and they tend to be more engaged in mission. And to that, we say yes and amen. That's right where we want to be as well. And so we want to hold these two things together at all times, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We don't believe these things should ever be divided. You can't look at the life of Jesus and say, well, was he filled with the word or filled with the spirit? Because it's both. You can't look to the, to the growth of the church in Acts and say, well, did they love the word or did they love the spirit? Because it was both. And I would even suggest that, that the way we often uh, move apart the word and the spirit in our churches causes one of the greatest divisions in the church today, especially in the Western world. I could even go on to say that subtracting either the Word or the Spirit has led to many of the church's other problems, from racial discrimination to minimizing the roles of women, pride in leadership, prayerlessness. So much can be, can be led back to either losing a love for the Word or losing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We need to be both. Holding them together gives us the strength of each tradition while guarding us from the errors of each tradition. Our challenge, though, is that there aren't a lot of models and mentors in this area. There are not a lot of churches that hold these two things together really well. 
And one of the, the fears in church planning is that if you're trying to do both, you might not reach anybody, anybody because the word people don't like the spirit people and the spirit people might not like the word people. And so there's a reason why a lot of churches just kind of pick one or the other. But the life of Jesus, the church in Acts, the vision of Ephesians, it's gospel-centered and spirit-filled. Amen? All right, now where do we go from here? How do, we, how do we hold these things together in the church? A few things I want to encourage you to do on a really practical level. Number one is to dwell on the gospel daily. Dwell on the gospel, the gospel that we've been describing. Dwell on it every single day. Now, I'm, I'm a fan of, of the, you know, sort of the Bible in a year, you know, the Bible reading plans that take you through the whole of the Bible in a year, but I'm an even bigger fan of prioritizing the Psalms, the Gospels, and the rest of the New Testament. And before you get upset with me, what I suggest is reading the Old Testament every year and then reading the Psalms, Gospels, and the rest of the New Testament a hundred times. Immerse yourself in the Scriptures. I love the Old Testament. I love the Psalms. I love looking at the life of Jesus. And when you're reading, do it prayerfully. And the first question you want to ask is, how does this reveal the gospel? What element of the gospel does this reveal, whether it's our adoption or our union or our redemption? Some aspect of the gospel is present in almost every single passage of Scripture. The second thing to ask is, how does this reveal God's love for us? Not just God's love for me, but God's love for us together. And so dwell on the gospel daily. Second thing, love your church family. Think about it. If we are adopted by God, then he's our father and we are all in the same family. In the same way, if we are one with the son, we are joined to him, then we are also joined to every one of each other. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're joined together. And if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then we're filled with the exact same Holy Spirit in each of our lives. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all affirm the unity and the oneness that we have together in salvation. The message of the Bible is not simply that God loves you, singular, but that he loves you, plural, y'all, as they say in some parts of the country. Think about it. If God loves me all the way to the cross and he loves you all the way to the cross, then how could we not be filled with love for one another? Love your church family in your community group. Think about who you can pray for, who you can connect with this week, who you might reach out to, who, who you might take out for, for coffee or meet with for dinner. Maybe you do a play date with kids if you have them and seek to be a blessing to them. I mean, it's great to have a place where we can kind of dump our stuff, but, but prioritize listening. How are you doing? Tell me what God's doing in your life. How can I walk with you and pray with you? How can I serve you and love you in a practical way? So dwell on the gospel, love your church family. And then the last thing is to pray and praise. Pray and praise with everything you've got. I don't know if you noticed it, but Paul has now used the phrase for the praise of his glory four times in only 14 verses. For the praise of his glory. He's told us that this is our purpose four times now. We exist for the praise of his glory. 
And maybe you notice as well, if you've read through Ephesians recently, that the first real commandment given, I mean, after all of this rich theology, after all these, these incredible prayers, really the main command is to sing. Several commands to just sing in response to God. And so pray and praise, pray in the Spirit, seek God's face, worship in the Spirit, keep on singing, and do these things together. So you've been adopted into the family of God the Father. Think about that, God, the God of the universe. This God who who designed the galaxies and and fills the sky with these marvelous things that we can't even see, and and then all the way down to like deciding that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Like God did all of this all the way down to these tiny things, and this is the God that invited you into his family. We are adopted into the family of the Father. And we have been adopted or we have been joined to the Son. As if it wasn't enough just to be welcomed in by this incredible God, we are joined to the Son as well. The same Jesus who was born on earth as a little boy, who was baptized, who was raised with his family, who resisted temptation, who taught on the sunny hillsides who healed the lepers and cast out demons and raised the dead, who went to the cross for our sins and and rose again. You are united to this Jesus. And still, if that wasn't enough, you are also filled with the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that Romans says raised Jesus from the dead now lives within you. The Holy Spirit is synonymous with the power of God in the Scriptures. That's a message for another day. But you have the very personal power of God within you. The Spirit of unity fills the church. The Spirit that that pours out good fruits in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This Holy Spirit dwells within you. And so living for the praise of his glory, believe in this this gospel of your redemption that he has set you free, free from slavery and free to oneness with Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Try not to minimize or, or, or grieve the Spirit, but instead be filled with the fullness of the Spirit and pray and praise him with everything you've got. Let's pray.